Welcome to 502 Conversations. I'm Brian Kirby, and my guest today is Dr. Christopher Labos. Dr. Labos, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You did. You did. It's, it's not an easy name to pronounce, despite the fact that it's only five letters long. Okay. That's well, better than Yaneidos, whatever it is. <laughs> um, we may, that may come up. Okay. I have a brief bio on you, and then we shall get started with our conversation. So this is the part where I read your bio and you look awkward because you hear all these great things you. about yourself. So, Dr. Labos is a cardiologist with a degree in epidemiology. He spends most of his time doing things for which he does not get paid, like research, teaching, and podcasting. Occasionally, he finds time to practice as a cardiologist so he can pay his rent. He realizes that half of his research findings will be disproved in five years. He just doesn't know which half. He writes for the Montreal Gazette and makes regular appearances on CBC Radio and TV. He is also the co-host of the Body of Evidence podcast, where he and Jonathan Jerry take a skeptical eye at health claims and look at the body of evidence on a variety of health topics such as obesity and hunger, diabetes, salt, drinking water, generic drugs, fluoride, vaping, GMOs, and much, much more. They tell you what's solid information, what's iffy, and what is just crap. They have also done episodes about expertise, scientific papers, social media and journalism, biases in the thinking of doctors, bad statistics, and science journalism. He has a new book soon to be released, Does Coffee Cause Cancer and Eight More Myths About the Food We Eat? I should say the book is available for pre-order right now, and it seems like the book plays into the second part, science, thinking about studies, expertise, uh, bad statistics, and journalism. So let me ask you one question right off the bat. Many people are thinking, what coffee cancer link and other myths? I mean, aren't those things studied free from bias and errors? I mean, using random samples that can be generalized to the population? So not always. And I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote this book and focused on, on food in particular is because food research is a really, really hard thing to study properly because it's just hard. There's so many variables that feed into it. You know, if you wanted to test a new medication, that's relatively straightforward. You get a new medication, you make a sugar pill that looks exactly the same. So nobody can tell the difference. You get a thousand people or 10,000 people or 20,000 people, you divide them into two groups, you give half of them the pill, half of them the placebo, and then you wait to see what happens. That's relatively easy. It's very expensive and logistically very complicated, but the concepts behind it are straightforward. But if you want to study food, that's really, really difficult because you can't really control what people eat, at least not over any extended period of time. So a lot of the food research really has to be observational, meaning you're asking people what they eat and then trying to draw differences between people who eat a lot of strawberries and people who eat very few strawberries. But then you run into the problem that the people who eat a lot of strawberries are probably different than the people who don't eat strawberries for other reasons. And now you don't know, was it the strawberries or was it the other reasons that led to the differences in heart disease, let's say. So there's a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges to food research, which is why it makes it a particularly uh, ripe target for, you know, if you want to do myth busting, which is a lot of what I do both in my writing and on the podcast with, uh, with Jonathan. So I must say, I started to read the book and I thought, mm, I'm not so sure I'm going to like this format. But soon, 
not only was I interested in the information, but I also I became engaged with the story and found myself propelled by the narrative. So do you want to talk a little bit about the overall story arc and how you came up with that format? Yeah, so I'm glad you said that because oh, it good. was a bit of a risky format. It because um, it is very different than most other science books. And the when I first came up with the idea for the book, it was going to be a very standard science book. The first sample chapter that I wrote when I was submitting it to the agents and ultimately to the publisher, uh, it was the coffee chapter, uh, which inspired the, the title of the book. It was very much a, a, a you know a fairly academic almost chapter about you know the issues of selection bias and how the numbers can skew the results and how you can make it seem like coffee causes cancer even though it doesn't. And so you know the the publisher was like, yeah, this is good. There's a lot of books like this out there on the market. Can we do something a little bit different? And so I was talking with him and we were having a conversation, bouncing ideas off of each other, and he suggested. Uh, a book that is a little bit famous in Canada. People may or may not be aware of it. It's called um, The Wealthy Barber. And The Wealthy Barber was an economics book. And the premise was that you had this barber and people would come into the barber shop and he would give them haircuts and he would, they would talk about economics and he would give them advice about how to invest their money. So he said, could you do something like that? And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And for the past few years, I've been doing this podcast with my friend Jonathan, the one that you mentioned, and uh, for people who are fans of the podcast, and if you're not fans of the podcast, you should go subscribe. It is a comedy medicine podcast, so it's basically the two of us talking, but we're basically playing characters, versions of ourselves, and there's a lot of comedy built in, and we have an opening skit at the beginning. I thought, well, so I was speaking to the publisher. Um, I don't mention his name, Jack David. He was actually really, really helpful in helping me structure the this, uh, this book. And I was speaking with him and he said, and I said, no, I have this podcast. Could we do something like that? And he's like, all right, give it a try. And so I rewrote the coffee chapter, which is uh, for people who ultimately read the book. It's the chapter where we first meet Casey, who ends up playing a significant role in the ultimate um, uh, narrative of the book. And so I wrote that and it was still a fairly standard thing. It was very much, you know, catch and release in terms of dialogue the doctor says something Casey says something we explain it that way and so I sent the chapter to a friend of mine who serves as the inspiration for Casey uh, who would be mortified if I mentioned her name on any type of tv radio or what have you so I never do but I sent it to her and I said uh, what do you think and her email response to me was pretty good but I kept expecting him to ask her out at the end and the minute she said that, I said, oh, this is a love story. And I realize now that you could have these sort of two parallel tracks. You could have the science in there, but you could actually build this narrative and have it have an actual narrative arc. And so this story does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There is a character development. There's a subplot in there as well. So my hope was that even people who don't want to get engaged with the nitty gritty of the science and the math, you know, as you and I might enjoy doing, like dissecting a paper, looking for the flaws and the biases, even more casual readers can just sit back and sort of enjoy the narrative and sort of just sample the science that's in there. And so my hope is if I do it right, that there's going to be a little bit of something for everybody and therefore the more casual science consumer and then for the more hardcore person 
who wants to go into the debunking aspect of it and who can then go into the notes at the end and look at all the calculations and the references and, and really dissect a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the framework of the dialogue. And I should also say, you don't set up the characters as straw men. These are intelligent no. characters that can have a conversation with you. So I was kind of worried about that too when you ran into the first yeah. one. Oh, geez, I hope he doesn't. But no, so they are not straw men or straw women or straw people or whatever you want to say. They, are, they, they engage with the conversation. So I really did like that part. And, and that was the thing. I mean, I, another part was like, I was thinking also, you know, Galileo and his fame, I forget what the name of his treatise was, the one that got him into trouble, right? Where he was had two characters debating and one was called Simplicio. The Simplicio was arguing that the earth was the center of the universe and he had the character that kind of represented him who was arguing that um, uh, the sun was the center of the universe. And then there was the whole controversy that Simplicio was portrayed as a buffoon and there was the accusation that he meant it to represent the Pope and the Pope got insulted. So I was always a little bit conscious of that, that you don't want that straw man argument. And where I think it became really interesting was when you have a chapter on meat, you can have two characters sort of argue their value preferences and not actually come to a solution. So you can have Jim, the character who's like, yeah, but I do, do like eating meat. I understand that it's maybe not great for me, but I do enjoy it. And the risk is kind of small, so it is tolerable. And then you can have Katie, who's like, yes, but also think about the environmental and the social, you know, and the, the moral aspects of it. And so you can have them approach the same problem from different perspectives and then contextualize the, the risk mathematically, which is a five to a 6% risk when people read through the chapter, they'll, they'll understand what I mean. But I thought that was really interesting because there are issues about how do we eat healthy that don't have a clear solution. I think that's also the point of the book is that I'm not here telling you this is what the right answer is. The kind of the point of the book is that there often is no right answer. There's only degrees of risk and how much you're willing to accept that risk and that uncertainty really depends on a whole lot of other stuff that have nothing to do with the pure math and the pure science. A lot of these things are social, historical, cultural, environmental issues. And so you can have characters debate things in that way and reflect the fact that there is no single answer to a lot of these issues because a lot of what we do with respect to eating is not just scientific. A lot of it is cultural and habit forming. So much of what we do as part of our human rituals are tied up with foods. You know, we toast alcohol not because alcohol is particularly good for us. In fact, it's not, but it's a habit that we really just can't get out of, at least here in North America, where every formal meal is accompanied with a toast that is alcoholic in nature. And that's probably not going to change in the very near future. I should say also that by speaking through the characters, um, the reader becomes engaged with the characters. Yeah. When the characters are arguing, you're kind of, you take a step back so nobody's going to say, oh, do you see what Dr. Lavos wrote here? They'll say, what are Jim and Katie talking about? So you're kind of <laughs> off the hook when they're arguing. Just like people, you know, they think that fictional characters on TV are, you know, somehow their opinions yeah. are real. And yeah. even though much of the time they have nothing to do with one another. So, so you're, you're off the hook there when you bring up those cultural issues and stuff. Well, and, and that's the thing, too, like, because if you were saying this in a book, that's you saying it, whereas here you can have different characters represent different points of view. And so it makes for a much more complex discussion. Then you can also have the characters provide useful um, shorthands, right? So like in a book, I would kind of have to prove the math that I was using or else be accused of dumbing down my message. Whereas here, you can have the characters be like, please spare me the math, sir. 
I don't want to get into the calculus. So you can make that as a joke. And then you can put all that in, you know, the, the, the appendix at the end. And then the people who want it can go look for it without it breaking up the narrative. So it's also, I found it a very useful narrative technique for keeping the story going and not getting bogged down in the details. Uh, and then you can make the details and the conversations when you want to use them a lot more user-friendly. Like we can use online dating as an example, which is a joke that I kind of keeps recurring throughout the book because that is the type of thing people would say. That is an example that people would bring up. Whereas if you put it in a straight book, it would be a little bit jarring and a little bit tonally sort of off. So it's, I find this format a little bit more freeing and that you can do and you can try and you can experiment different things. And I, I feel, and you can tell me if you agree, I feel like the chapters get a little bit looser as you read the book. I think it starts off a little bit more contained. And then as we get and get to know the characters, a little bit more of the humor comes out. There's a little bit more complexity in the narrative. And I think things loosen up a little bit. And I think that just reflects almost my evolution as I was writing the book from beginning to end. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Let's get into some details now. I really did like how each chapter, I'm sorry, in each chapter, you, you use an accessible study that people can look up, or one or two, sometimes I, more than two, sometimes three or four, and you yeah. illustrated some of the issues of which we need to be aware, such as sampling errors, you know, assessing how risk is actually reported, as in hazard versus risk or relative versus absolute risk, uh, problems with assuming that what appears at the group level is true for the individual and those other potential issues. But one thing I really want to talk a little bit about is sampling and making sure that your sample is, is representative. And, as an example, I don't want to do one from the book. I'll use this recent study. I think you've written about it, erythritol and erythritol, the artificial sweetener and cardiovascular right. disease risk. Yeah. So I looked yeah. at this paper, and in two of the they had three three groups. Two of the participant groups, 75% of them already had a history of cardiovascular disease, and in the third yeah. group, almost 70% had a history. Yeah, it's not like they found a group that had cardiovascular right. disease and then a group that didn't, and then they looked back to see, oh, was there yeah. anything in common here? They only had high risk, I'm sorry, high rates of cardiovascular disease in the group. I mean, is that the best sample from which to choose? So it kind of depends what question you're trying to answer. And I think that's the point that sometimes people don't realize if they don't, you know, do the nitty gritty of this. It's almost like going to the Oracle of Delphi. You're going to get an answer. Just make sure you ask the right question, you know? So, and if you think, and if there's some ambiguity in the answer, ask a follow-up, you know, when, when the Oracle tells you a great empire is going to be destroyed, if you cross the river to go into battle, you have to ask which empire. Um, if people don't understand the historical reference, you can Google it, but that's the point. Like, you know, you're going to get an answer, but it's not always the answer that people want. So you may get a statistical association in this particular high-risk group but that's not necessarily generalizable to the general population. So what's true in one group may not be true to the whole population. And that is a recurring problem that has happened in research. And I'll give you an even more general example. Um, you know, you don't have to go back that far, you know, a few decades to like the 70s and 80s, where women were not really represented in clinical research. Like most of the studies, especially some of these like landmark historical trials, you go back and you see they were done almost entirely in men. Now, there were different reasons why that happened, some somewhat justifiable in a way, others not at all. Um, but, you know, that's what happened. And that eventually changed because you can't just assume that what's true in men is true in women. You can't just assume that what's true in 
diabetics is going to be true in the general population. And you can't be, you can't just necessarily assume what's true in a high risk cardiac population is going to be true for the general population. So there's a lot of issues that go into designing a study. Uh, and there's a lot of decisions that have to go into it, which are, for lack of a better term, arbitrary decisions. And when I supervise students, which I do now more of than I used to, and I, they ask me, like, how do I do this? I go, well, it really depends what question you want to answer. And they're kind of surprised, like, but isn't there one way to do this? I'm like, no. How you analyze the data depends on what specific question you're trying to answer. And it's all just about understanding the precision of what you're trying to say. And I think that's the point that a lot of people don't have, because there is this recurring um, idea in medicine, which is we'll analyze it a bunch of different ways and whatever works, that's what we're going to publish. And you're like, no, that's not the way to do science. You have to start with a question, analyze it, analyze the data you have, see if the answer to that question is yes or no, and then publish that. But that's not how a lot of researchers go about it because there is this bias to wanting to get stuff published. And there is a tendency to preferentially publish new and interesting and positive results. And so there is this tendency amongst some researchers to engage in what we call p-hacking or, you know, multiple hypothesis. And there's a few different names for it, but it's the idea of, well, let's test a bunch of different things. And then whatever sort of rises to the surface and is interesting, that's what we're going to go with. And um, that's really the problem is that how you pick the patients is going to matter. And if you're not careful about picking the right patients, that's where you get answers that are sometimes spurious and irrelevant to the question that you initially started off with. So what's the bottom line on that, that study with erythritol? Did people that have cardiovascular disease somehow retain erythritol so they have higher levels? Or does erythritol contribute to cardiovascular disease? What was the bottom line there? Don't know. I, well, I don't know what the bottom line of that paper actually was. In fact, and there were multiple different groups there where they were testing people's blood levels. And there was other groups where they were giving them a slurry of erythritol, but they were also giving them like very high doses relative to what most of the population eats. For people who don't know, erythritol is an artificial sweetener that is used in some things. Uh, and, artificial and, and they followed that other group, that group, yeah. they only followed them for two days, I think. Yeah, it wasn't, and it was a people. very, very... <laughs> yeah, it, it, the, the the study in question, and I mean, for people who are interested, you can just Google my name, Christopher Lavos Erythritol, and you'll see where I sort of analyze it. There was also a great video by um, on, on Medscape by F. Perry Wilson that I linked to in my article that really goes into it as well. So, but it, yeah, it was sort of a, a study where they did a bunch of different things. There was a basic science component. And then the only part in humans was, like you said, it was a very small sample where they just gave them a slurry and this wanted to see how their blood levels rose, but they didn't actually look for heart attack. It was, a, it was an odd study for the amount of press that it got. And I think that partially reflects the current culture that we're in, which is people are talking a lot about artificial sweeteners now. And I don't really understand why, because it's not as if anything has changed now compared to five years ago. But, you know, you had the WHO declaration about artificial sweeteners. You had, um, what else recently? There was also another paper uh, about it as well. People have been talking about sucralose recently and art another artificial sweetener. So there's all this talk and the reality is artificial sweeteners are really not that bad for you. A lot of what you hear is not justifiable. The increased cardiovascular risk, I don't think it's real. But, but people, it's such an interesting topic. Sorry, go ahead. Um, well, people are going to read that headline. Erythritol yes, linked well, to heart disease or artificial yeah, yeah. sweetener linked to heart disease. Yikes, I want to read that. Yeah, well, and that's partly why I do what I do. It'd be like, well, no, that study you heard is probably not true. And here are the reasons why. 
but you know, it's interesting. I'm, I was almost thinking I was actually gonna. I'm, I'm, I'll, 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 I'll announce something here for the first time. It's not really an announcement, but I was. I'm already starting to think about what a sequel for this book would would look like. And so one of the chapters, I think now has to be an artificial sweetener because everybody's talking about it again. So it's an it's a fascinating topic to look at because you have this story that has been really coming back in cycles for maybe like 30, 40 years. I mean, we've been talking about artificial sweeteners since the 80s, right? And like, oh, it causes cancer. And then like, well, no. And then it becomes quiescent for a while. And then it resurges again. And so it's almost culturally interesting to see why people keep going back to this well. And frankly, I don't think there's that much of a risk there. And what's fascinating is that just sort of parallel to all this, if you, what you're doing is cutting sugar out of your diet and replacing it with something else that doesn't have any calories, that should make a huge impact in making you healthier. But it doesn't seem to do that either. So it's a really fascinating thing that I don't think we've really wrapped our heads around yet. It's like, why, why do artificial sweeteners not show the benefit they should? And why do they look more harmful than they actually do? And then you get into the question of, well, is it just that higher risk patients tend to use them preferentially? And is that skewing all our analyses? Like it could be something as simple well, and straightforward as that. Um, when I was a youngster, probably in high school, it was TAB, and whatever artificial sweetener was in TAB, if anyone remember, remembers TAB, was linked to cancer. But then it turns out you had to drink like 130 cases a day, or some ridiculous yeah. amount they gave to mice. I have a theory yeah. about the diet, about the artificial sweeteners not resulting in weight loss, and that's because sometimes you may, you know, when I was younger, you would also observe people at fast food restaurants order a large meal with a Diet Coke. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could be could be saying, "Well, I'm having a diet coke, so I can eat this other stuff." So, I mean, that's very possible, and that is one of the theories that's been proposed. But yeah, that's an issue. It's like when you look at it, and again, a lot of this research is observational, so it's particularly prone to this type of thing, which is like, "Well, why aren't they losing weight?" Well, it's probably because it's affecting other aspects of their diet and their lifestyles, which is having an even greater impact. What you would want to do is do a randomized trial. But if you stop and think about it, how would you actually do that? You would basically have to lock people in a room so they couldn't get food from an outside source, give them exactly the same food, but one group is going to get regular soda and one group is going to get diet soda. And then you have to see, will they lose more weight over the course of five years? Logistically, you just, you just can't do a study like that. And the minute you let people, you know, live their lives and try to tell them, well, you only drink diet soda. Well, people are going to deviate from that study protocol because they're exposed to so many food choices. So it becomes an impossible study logistically to almost do. When you do it, they have to be very small and very short-term studies. And then they tend to get overwhelmed in the public zeitgeist with these larger epidemiological retrospective analyses, which are interesting and very complicated, but they are prone to the types of bias that I mentioned in the book that we've been talking about, which is it could be all linked to a third variable that's skewing the associations. And I have a question coming up about reliability of questionnaires and surveys. So before we go down that hole, though, one of the chapters you write about processed red meat being listed as a carcinogen, yeah. but that got me thinking. I eat a lot of veggie burgers, veggie dogs. I don't eat much meat. Actually, I don't eat any meat now. But what about processed veggies, like veggie burgers, veggie dogs, veggie sausages, bacon, and the cold cuts? I mean, is there something in the processing that does it? Or Well, first of all, what does it mean to be listed as a carcinogen? I guess we should start there. So, yeah, so that's the issue. Now, and, and I think most people don't really understand what the process is. So there's an organization called IARC, the International Agency for 
Research into Carcinogens. Is that what it is? A AIRC, International Agency Research into Carcinogens. I should know what that acronym stands for, and it's completely slipped out of my mind. But basically, it's a subgroup of the World Health Organization. And what their job is, is they produce these monographs. And what they do is they review all the evidence on a particular subject, a particular molecule. And they issue a report on whether it is associated with cancer or not. And they give it a grade, a grade one, two A, two B, three. Um, and the, what those grades represent is one is they're saying, if it's grade one, they're saying it is a carcinogen. If it's two A, they're saying it's probably a carcinogen. If it's two B, they say it's possibly a carcinogen. When they say it's grade three, they say it's unclassifiable. So there's they can't say one way or the other. And then grade four would be uh, not a carcinogen or probably not a carcinogen is I think how it's uh, how it's listed. Right, let me stop you there. So grade one, it's like a pass fail. It either is or isn't. There's no uh, level. There's, of there, there, there's no equivocation. They're basically saying we are as certain as we can be that this thing is carcinogenic. Okay. And then 2A, 2B, 2 basically saying they become less and less certain about the quality of the evidence. But what they don't do is they don't quantify the risk or how important this is or whether this should inform policy decisions. Because all they're doing, all they're saying is, do we have good quality human data linking this thing to cancer? And so a lot of the stuff that's in group one is self-evident, like cigarettes, obviously, the sun's UV rays, obviously, okay? But then they'll also list something like tamoxifen. Um, and tamoxifen, most people probably know, is a, uh, a medication that we use to treat breast cancer because it blocks estrogen. And so it's a very useful cancer treatment. And in fact, it has some ancillary benefits too in terms of reducing the risk of, uh, of osteoporosis because of its estrogenic effects on bone receptors. So it's a very useful medication. It's probably saved the lives of, I mean, who knows how many thousands of women, given how frequently it's used. It's very cheap. It has very few side effects. It's one of the greatest chemotherapy agents for breast cancer that we exist in terms of its ease and simplicity. It's sort of a simple pill. It's not an IV infusion, so it's great. But because of its estrogenic effects, it does slightly increase the risk of certain gynecological cancers. But because of that association, when IARC goes to the data, it says, oh, we have a proven cancer link that is enough for tamoxifen to be listed as a group one carcinogen. And, you know, for the casual reader who's reading this, you're like, right, but it's a thing that we use to treat cancer and the benefits vastly, vastly outweigh the risks. So we're not going to stop using tamoxifen. If anything, we should be using it more. And in fact, over the course of my training, the guidelines about how long to continue tamoxifen post-breast cancer have increased. It used to be, you know, five years. And now there's, you know, guidelines that say, well, you know what, push it back to 10 years post because there are these ancillary benefits and there's no risks. Just like keep it going to extract whatever benefit you can from it. So we have to understand what IARC is trying to do. They're making a commentary on the quality of the evidence not on the magnitude of the risk. And that's where you get into competing concepts of risk and hazard. So they're commenting on the hazard. Is there a potential association? How certain are we that, that exists? As opposed to how you and I and most people are going to think about something, which is how risky is it? If I take this, if I eat this, if I use this medication, how likely am I to get cancer? Okay, so listed as a carcinogen, that could be 
we know it's a carcinogen because we, it's one in 100,000 for yeah. this drug, um, and cigarettes are 25 in 10,000 for cancer, so, but they are still carcinogens. So they don't There's take that part into how bad is it is not taken into effect, into account. Exactly, exactly. And that's- So when and, they put down that a hot dog is ba as bad as a cigarette, it's not yeah. as bad, it's just- It's just, they're in the same group because they've decided that, and it's not even red meat, eh? that was the important part too of the headlines that got wrong, processed red meat got listed as class one because they reviewed the evidence and they were convinced enough to be certain that the association- was real and so they say it's not saying that you're going to you're not it's not as if you're going to get cancer if you eat processed red meat but the point was they were convinced by the quality of the evidence the magnitude of that benefit and how important it is from a public policy standpoint to get people to eat less processed red meat is a wholly separate issue which they say is not part of their purview and that's i mean fair enough i guess because they're very clear about that but you sort of wonder how useful it is to the general public to see these reports that are not meant to be consumed by the general public. They were really intended, I, I suppose, as guidance documents for governments who can then look at this and make decisions like, is this thing dangerous? Do we need to pass regulations to limit its spread in the environment and drinking water, stuff like that? But again, you get the headline, never mind smoking, yeah. give up hot dogs. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so well, and what what was fascinating about this too, when that story broke, when IARC published that particular monograph, the headlines were also changed. Like you know, some places like cigarettes are as bad as hot dogs in Montreal. It was cigarettes are uh, smoked meat is as bad as cigarettes, right? The the meal changed from hot dogs to smoked meat, which is the local Montreal, uh, um, um, you know, favorite sandwich. In other places, it was hamburgers, right? So. The, the 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 meat that they used to generate the headline would change city to city to reflect what people loved the most because I guess it had the greatest sort of emotional gut punch that would get people to then read read the article. Well, yeah, it has to be culturally specific to be scary. So yeah, but wait, we lost the thing though. So what about is it the processing? So is, are, what, is there any research on processed veggie burgers and processed hot dogs? I mean the veggie hot dogs. I mean I, I tried to look into it. And it was I didn't find much on it. There's really not. I mean, the research has really been on red meat and then processed red meat. The, the reality is, too, is that these veggie burger type things are still relatively new. And so there hasn't been really that much time. And now people are going to be like, well, they're not that new. I mean, they've been around for over 10 years at this point. But when you do food research, especially when you're looking for cancer, you have to look at time periods that span years. And so it takes a very, very long time for something to be routinely studied by enough different groups that you have a large enough body of evidence to draw any type of conclusion. But I mean, the act, if you were asking me now, I think the act of processing is probably not good for you because what are they doing? They're adding a lot of salt. Um, you know, the way they're probably adding a lot of fat if they're deep frying it, like there's stuff that they're doing to the food that is probably not all that healthy. So the best way to eat vegetables is to eat vegetables. Like you don't have to put, you, 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 you don't have to put like melted cheese on them to eat them. That's defeating a bit of the purpose. You are bumming me out now. <laughs> I, thought, I, I am. I, I've been I'm not going to I take am. steamed broccoli and put it between two pieces of bread. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> And even with the veggie burger, I mean, so you take the veggie burger with your white bun, your ketchup, your mayonnaise, and your slice of cheese, and so what if I really And maybe french fries and no. a soft drink. Okay. I do. Come on, man. You're <laughs> killing me here. 
Well, and I think that's the other point of the book, which is not is to to sort of explain to people that there is no right way to eat, right? Like you can have junk food if you want. Just understand that that's what you're doing. And that's what sort of gets me with, you know, people who will every so often try to claim that ice cream will help you lose weight. No, it won't. You know, or that alcohol is good for you. That's the whole chapter of the book to alcohol. So it's like, if you want to drink alcohol, drink alcohol. If you want to eat ice cream, eat ice cream. If you want to eat bacon, you can eat bacon. Just understand that it's not good for you. And so a lot of what I'm debunking is not the science per se. It's debunking how that science is transmitted to the public, where you're taking this very, very complex thing and trying to distill it into a simple capsule to tell people this is right, this is wrong. And like, no, it's just it's gradations and acceptability of risk. And the final conclusion of the whole red meat cancer thing is that if you assume a population prevalence of colon cancer of about 5%, and that's the real the, the, the worry with red meat is that it's increasing risk of cancer. In particular, we're talking about colon cancer or colorectal cancer. So if you assume that most people of average risk have about a 5% chance of colon cancer, eating red meat regularly, like, and I think the final report was more than three times per week, if I remember. I don't think it was daily. I think it was more than three times per week. That'll bump your risk from 5% to 6%. So, I mean, if you're prepared to tolerate that risk, you can do it. Just understand that you're putting yourself at high risk. And then you get into this whole complicated thing of, well, we have ways to prevent colon cancer, right? You can have colonoscopies, you can do that. So like, is that acceptable given that we have, or most places have colorectal cancer screening programs, whether with colonoscopy or with fecal occult blood testing? Like there's like, there's a lot of variables that go into it in terms of you deciding, should I eat this hamburger or not? And I hope the point of the book when people read it is, well, a lot of this doesn't really matter because the risks are relatively small. Just understand that it's probably not good for you and maybe you should try eating less of it. Like you, if we if we all ate less red meat and more fish, we would all be healthier. There's no doubt about that. It's really a question of making that transition into our food habits, which are largely driven by habit and the way our parents raise us. And it's very hard for people to change. And I'll say, I think you reported that risk correctly there. I'm sure you did. But what I mean is, you said it's 5%, it raises it to 6%. So that's instead of 5 per 100, that's 6 per 100, right? Yeah. But yeah. in the in the news, it would be reported as, let's, your risk is 20% greater. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And so then people go, yes. oh, no, 20%, that's almost to 100%. <laughs> yeah. Which again, well, 100% this, is just whole, doubling. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. And this is relative versus absolute risk. And I mean, people do this all the time. Now, there's a reason why relative risks exist. And I sort of I get into this in the book a little bit. And then I, can, then I have the characters jump in. They're like, we were promised there would be no math, sir. You know, so we can have those little jokes and I can sort of introduce those little concepts in short ways. But there, the reason why relative risks exist is they are mathematically very useful when you're doing data analysis. It then becomes incumbent upon you when you want to transmit this information to the public to put it in a context that is easier for them to understand. And that is absolute risk, which is you're going from five to 6%. Yeah, that's a 20% increase, but it's a one percentage point increase. And these are the types of things you learn when you write for the newspaper because they have you know, formatting standards. So we talk, so we don't intuitively grasp what a 20% increase is 
but we know what a one percentage point increase is. And so that's how people like to think about their risk profiles. I'm here, I go to here, how much of a step up is that? One thing I read in the book that I'd never heard before was the cholesterol myth that lowering yeah. cholesterol was once thought to be bad for you. When was oh, yeah. that? I didn't, that one escaped me. Where, where was that from? Not that long ago. Not that long ago. I mean, a lot of the people involved in this, you know, quote unquote controversy are still alive. So like we were debating this well up into the 80s, 1980s. I mean, statins, the medications that are sort of ubiquitous now, were really only introduced to the public in the 1990s. Uh, prior to that, one of the reasons why people were very lukewarm about treating cholesterol is that none of the medications worked that well, to be quite frank with you. You know, so if we wait, were wait, having wait, this so conversation... Clarify. So yeah. it wasn't that having low cholesterol was thought to be bad. It's that taking the drugs that lowered it was thought to be bad? So that's part of it. So there were a few, there were a few um, uh, theories about that. But yeah, I mean, it, it was... There were some people who thought that low cholesterol was bad for you, like your, you would, your brain wouldn't have the building blocks it needed to function and build up new cells. But a lot of it, too, was that the medications had a lot of side effects. And so a lot of people said, and so there was this one headline from The Atlantic, which may or may not be in the book. It hasn't really been decided yet, but there's this, well, it's in the book. I just don't know if we can get the, the picture, but it's, it's this great picture. It was the cover of The Atlantic from... Oh, I can't remember the date now. I think it's 1989, but basically it was the cholesterol myth and it was the, the, the subtitle was lowering your cholesterol is almost impossible through diet, potentially dangerous with medications. And like there's, it's unclear why we're doing it. And so there really was this body of researchers who really felt that cholesterol had nothing to do with heart disease, that we were just killing people by giving these medications that didn't change anything and that much of cardiovascular risk was driven not by cholesterol but by other factors um which is frankly no longer true like we have now decades of research supporting that but it's really funny that people who are still alive during that controversy will still espouse these things because we haven't gone through that generational cycle yet where you know the the, the people involved in that debate have left us they're still around so they're still in a sense arguing the same debate that they were arguing, you know, 30 years ago. Well, this falls under science doesn't change, scientists die. <laughs> well, yeah, so the, the there's a max, I think it's Max Planck, right? Science, the, the formal quote is a very long one. Science does not evolve by the changing of ideas. It's that the, the old guard eventually dies off. So it's a very long quote, but then it's sometimes pithily shortened to science advances one funeral at a time. Oh, I hadn't heard that uh, one. Yeah. Well, speaking... it's, a, it's a bit macabre. It's a bit macabre, but uh, and then that's the problem. Like, it's there's not a lot of people who are willing to change their mind. And you know, when you have this sort of massive sea change, you know, a lot of the old guard will be like, "Well, I don't know about this." Like hormone replacement therapy, which went through a massive sea change in two thousand and one, two thousand and two, with the publication of the Women's Health Initiative study. There were a lot of people who were like, well, I still think it's useful in some groups, whereas all the medical students who came up then were like, no, it doesn't do anything. You use it to treat menopausal symptoms, but you don't do it for cardiovascular risk protection. Or, you know, physicians who grew up with like the self-breast exam, who still like recommended it to women, whereas all the new medical students who have come up in the past 10, 15, 20 years are like, no, it's we don't do that anymore. So people who never heard of these things, who didn't grow up with them, who never had it as part of their medical training, just have no emotional attachment to these issues. But these old ideas do tend to stick around for like one whole generational cycle after they've been effectively debunked, let's say. 
Yeah, and that's when most doctors were men probably, so we never did get a recommendation for a self-prostate exam, which is a good thing. No, that's that's right. <laughs> that would also be logistically very, very complicated. But then also, just to, to, to parry off of that, even the, the digital rectal exam, uh, which was very, very common for checking your prostate, it's now felt, I think, by most people that it's not really that useful because if you think about it all you're doing is checking the posterior surface of the prostate you can't feel the anterior surface at all so there's much more i think of an evolution to be like well if you're going to screen somebody do it properly and the technology has advanced to the point that in many places it's frankly a uh, mri now because the prostate is a three-dimensional structure you can't feel the front of it just by doing a digital rectal exam ultrasound is better but it still has its limitations and we've gotten to the point to like MRI. Now a lot of people would be like, oh, that's excessive. That's a lot of money. And you're like, yeah, but it is better. And at a certain point, we have to decide, are we going to spend the extra money to have a better level of care? And for the most part, it is yes, but it does mean that healthcare becomes more expensive. And so you have this very interesting trade-off. And like it, as with food, there is no right or wrong answer. It's a question of benefits and debits. And the debit is more cost more complicated like having an mri is a fairly complicated procedure if you've ever had one like it's an ordeal but it is better because it allows you to visualize the entire organ in a 3d space and you're seeing the same sort of thing with mammograms whereas traditional mammograms are good less good in young women and i think there's a growing realization that mris are better but they are just a lot more expensive and so it's trying to find a way to reconcile that increased cost with what is truthfully improved performance metrics. Speaking of how science advances, kind of leads me right where I wanted to be, because I, I think this came in the, up in the book. Uh, I did read the whole thing, but I know you've mentioned it before, and it's something I think about a lot, is that I have, I think it was in the book, and that's that there really isn't that much interest in being the person that does the second study to confirm an original study, or even the third person. But, but I always ask, isn't that really the most important part? Because one study could be due to randomness, but if you do another two or three, that will eliminate, well, it won't eliminate, but it's less likely to be due to randomness. So isn't the confirmation actually more important than the original study? Yeah, it absolutely is. But there's no incentive to do that because if you replicate somebody's results, they're going to be like, okay, well, we already know this. Yeah, but if and you falsify is, think, it. <laughs> yeah, but that's the problem. Like medical journals, I, I, it's funny. Like when you ask the general public, how do you think medical publications happen. And most people would give you some variant of, well, a scientist has an idea, he approaches a journal, and then whatever the results are, they get published in that journal. And it's like, no, you have to do the experiment, show it to the editors of the journal, and they could decide we're not interested, they'll pass. So if you have a boring result, you may not be able to publish that. And that leads to an issue called publication bias, where negative results that are thought to be uninteresting never see the light of day because nobody wants to publish them because they're seen to be boring. There is a solution to that, and it's called registered reports, which is you design a study, you go to the journal, you submit your protocol to them, they approve it in advance, and then whatever the results are, those get published. And this is a relatively new thing that is gaining ground. But what's fascinating is that while it's like new and like a little bit, I don't want to say controversial, but it's a little bit like Nobody knows what to make of this in the medical literature because it's not common. People are like, oh, this is new and different, and I don't like change. Um, you know, it's still seen as this relatively like nascent phenomenon that hasn't really been worked out yet in, in scientific literature. 
And yet that's how the public thinks all scientific literature is generated. So we have this problem, which is we think that science needs to be interesting and it should be to engage the public, but we shouldn't have this barrier to publication, which now exists. Um, I'll tell you, we I was doing this research project with a colleague about uh, biomarkers in preeclampsia. So preeclampsia is when you develop high blood pressure when you're when you're pregnant. And so we were analyzing these biomarkers and we had some interesting results, but other people have shown other biomarkers are useful too. So when you try to publish, they're like, well, we've already, we have a biomarker for preeclampsia. What is this at? This is not interesting. And so the paper didn't get accepted in the first few journals where we submitted it. And that's just the reality, but it is research. It's data. It should be out there and be made public, but you have to convince people to publish it, which is not something people, and it's not something I think the general public doesn't really understand. And then trying to replicate what somebody else did, like to redo the same experiment is like, why would you do this? We already have this result and we haven't really internalized the importance of replication yet. I hope it's coming, but that may also take a generational change where a new generation of researchers that have seen this problem firsthand, when they get to senior positions, will they remember where they came from and start to implement some of the changes that need to happen? Well, just take the Nobel Prize and award it to the person that made the discovery, and then the second person to replicate, and the third person to replicate. <laughs> All three should get it. That might. Well, and th and that's another thing. Like the Nobel Prize. I mean, how Nobels are picked are sort of opaque and 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 you know shrouded in mystery because we don't know. Well, how I used they it as an example, but yeah. No, but that's the thing. It's like it's always like who was the first person to say this? Like, well, why does that matter? Right, because it's not. I mean, I I I understand why the first, like we know who won, who did it first. But I would say that's almost the wrong approach because unless it doesn't matter if you did it first, it matters can you do it ten times in ten different groups, and then you know it's true. So unless we bake replication into the actual papers, and this has actually happened in genetics, in the field of genetics, there was a big problem with false positives where you know somebody would analyze their database and they'd find this gene and somebody else would analyze a different database and find a different gene and you know you had all these hundreds and thousands of candidate genes out there but they weren't consistent across different research groups and then so somebody said okay things have to change and they implemented replication so before you can publish anything in genetics now you have to show that your gene is important not just in your population but in multiple different groups so replication has become standard in genetics. It just hasn't become standard in every other medical discipline yet where you're like, okay, we're going to do this, but we're going to do this in different independent groups to make sure we get the same result each time. That would be the ideal. It's just that we have to make it happen. I will say that a couple of years ago, I had the editor-in-chief of JAMA, or JAMA, mm -hmm. sitting where you are right now, except in his own office, Howard Bachner. And mm -hmm. I asked a question about replication and he said that they have moved to pre-registration like 10 years yeah. ago but then they give it these terrible headlines so it may be a fall uh maybe a negative result but they'll give it the headline covid vaccine associations with menstrual changes in women Ooh, yeah sounds important and then there's no evidence to support this conclusion <laughs> there's a there's a there's but at least art, it gets published there there's an art to writing titles and there were it used to be that the title gave you the information you needed. Like they would tell you if it was a positive negative study and now less so. And you're, it's exactly that. They're like they're, the association. And then you have to read to find out the association is negative. So they're not telling you 
what you need to know in the title. And maybe that's because they want people to click on the link and read the abstract. I mean, I genuinely don't know why that sort of culture shift happened. But yeah, the 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 quality of titles has definitely changed in recent years. I do a monthly show here at the station with a doctor, a preventive medicine doctor. And now we've added a segment, misleading headline of the month. So, and usually we have two or three. <laughs> okay, so one specific thing I gotta ask, speaking about misleading headlines, I gotta, cause this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, I gotta ask about the vitamin D cures everything chapter because this, it's not a layman thing. So many professionals are taken, well, I shouldn't say taken in by this, but subscribe to it. Um, and I get a monthly newsletter from my health insurance plan or something. And in the re most recent one, there was an article about vitamin D. And it said, you know, the article says studies have suggested that it reduces inflammation, it modulates cell growth, helps with the immune system, reduces upper respiratory infections, reduces cancer cell growth. Uh, it does end with more studies that are needed to confirm all this. Interesting thing is, it goes on to say that in one study, 90% of children ages 8 to 15 in greater Boston were deficient. But they don't define deficiency. They just say they found nine. Now, that's a huge number. And then it says, ask your provider if you're getting enough vitamin D. It seems like a slightly misleading article, especially they didn't define vitamin D. But my favorite mm. of all was this study that was titled, Vitamin D Sufficiency Reduced Risks for Adverse Clinical Outcomes in Patients with COVID-19. So the right. title is making a causal statement that vitamin yeah. D reduced severe infection, right? But you read the paper and it doesn't turn out to be that case at all. They looked at a couple hundred people in the hospital. They found that uh, a third of them were sufficient, so two thirds were insufficient. But they actually write that they can't show a cause and effect mechanism. Nonetheless, they recommend D supplementation for children and adults uh, to potentially reduce the risk. So they've gone yeah. from it reduces the risk of acquire, they've gone from it reduces severity to it reduces the risk of infection. So yeah. within the paper, they changed their hypothesis. And this caught the, this caught the internet like a hurricane because it was during COVID, right? Yeah. I read it and, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I could see how they were changing things as they go through it. So they're looking at disease, they're assessing that D levels are level low, and then they're proclaiming that low levels cause disease as opposed to maybe people with disease have low levels. It could be that way, right? Um, I guess I've spoken yeah. enough here, but you've written an entire chapter on it yeah. and those misleading well, titles. Here's the thing. I mean, vitamin D, it, it, there was a great editorial in like 2019, I think. I think I referenced it in the book um, because there was a lot of excitement about vitamin D. Now, every vitamin has gone through its own sort of cycle of excitement and then despair. So vitamin C and then vitamin E and now it's vitamin D's turn. And so there was a lot of observational research suggesting that you know, vitamin D was linked to heart disease, was linked to cancer, was linked to asthma, was linked to infections, multiple sclerosis, so many, so many, so many things. And that's because if you just take a snapshot in time, the people who have low vitamin D levels tend to have more disease. The problem with that snapshot is that you don't know, was it the low vitamin D levels that caused the disease? Or do people who are just sick become vitamin D deficient because they either have a poor diet or they don't go outside that much, right? Because we make some vitamin D from our skin, right? When sunlight, when UV radiation hits our skin, we can synthesize some vitamin D. So if you have a chronic illness and you don't go outside that much, well, you're probably more likely to become vitamin D deficient. And if you're chronically sick and you don't eat that well, you're probably going to become vitamin D deficient. Also, older people tend to have lower vitamin D levels, and the older you are, the more at risk you're going to be. So it's unclear 
if it's if it's A leads to B or B leads to A, is there reverse, reverse causation going on here? The way you do that is you give people vitamin D, right? You take people who have heart disease, who have cancer, or who are at risk, you give them vitamin D, and you see, do these people get better? And almost universally, they don't. They've tried it with heart disease. They've tried it with cancer. They've tried it with pretty much every outcome. And the, the editorial in 2019 was... And then came the randomized trials because the editorial was, was very funnily written. They're like, you know, at the beginning, we thought there was association between vitamin D and heart disease. And then came the randomized trials. So they didn't. And then there was this whole thing about cancer and all the studies linking vitamin, low vitamin D levels to cancer and worse outcomes. And then came the randomized trials. And then lo and behold, COVID happened and people did the same sort of thing over again. Where they're like, oh, the people having the worst COVID outcomes have low vitamin D levels. Maybe it's the vitamin D. And like, we don't need vaccines and expensive medications. Let's just give everybody vitamin D and there will be no COVID. And I won't have to wear my mask anymore. And you know that it's easy to see how that became a solution to a problem. Because if you're going to oppose public health measures, vaccines, you can't say do nothing. I mean, people saw that people were dying. Like, you know, uh, uh, most people were not that separated from reality to deny that the virus even existed. So you had to suggest some alternative if you weren't going to accept vaccines, whatever, says, well, let's do vitamin D, which is not something that I'm worried about. The problem is they tried that. They tried randomized trials where they gave patients vitamin D, either in the ICU or what have you, and, and it didn't work. So what we saw with COVID was sort of the same cycle of buying into this observational research and not understanding the principle of reverse causation that yeah, you might be very, very sick and have low vitamin D levels, but it doesn't mean those things go together. If you want to prove it, you have to do an intervention trial where you give somebody vitamin D tablets to see if they get better. And no matter how many times I would say this to people, they'd be like, but look at this research with a low vitamin. I'm like, it's the same thing. You have to show me a randomized trial where they give people vitamin D tablets to boost their vitamin D levels. And you know, this is why I don't get into Twitter fights with people because there's no point. Like they just wouldn't budge on the issue. And it wasn't like we weren't arguing the evidence anymore. We were arguing how to view science. And if you can't, if people are not willing to understand the concept of reverse causation, confounding, however you want to refer to it, there's almost no point because now you're not even speaking the same language. When I talked about defining vitamin D, you'll also find that in these studies, they define it at a much higher level for sufficiency than what the oh, Institute yeah. of Medicine and what the USPSTF recommends. So, I mean, we're talking 20 micrograms. What do you do? You do nanomoles? Down here, it's like nanograms per milliliter. Yeah, you always have to do the conversions so. whenever you get like US lab systems. I always, have to, I always have my online calculator to make those conversions. But yeah, that's, that's the other problem too, is that when people want to make the case because they believe in this, which is... Yeah, you just, just redefine it, and then everybody's insufficient. Find a higher threshold. They're yeah, like, right. you know, 50, 50 is too low. We need at least seventy-five. And you're then you're like, well, if you're going to use that, then yeah, everybody's going to be. There are reasons why the thresholds have been set where they were. And listen, if you want to debate and argue that, I mean, we can have a very, you know, you can have a debate about those issues. It gets very, very nitty gritty. And then once you start peeling away at some of their mathematical arguments, you start to see where things fall down. But it often doesn't get to that level of sophistication. It's like everybody's vitamin D deficient. Well, no, that's not 
that's not possible. And I think that's the other point. Like I still have patients like, should I take vitamin D? I hear everybody in Canada is like vitamin D deficient because it's the, you know, the cold white North up here. And it's like, well, no, actually, in fact, the rates of vitamin D deficiency are a little bit lower in Canada compared to the U S because we routinely supplement our milk with vitamin D, which was not a thing in the U S up until relatively recently, where now there's a lot more voluntary supplementation. So, um, you know, we're not that vitamin D deficient. It is an issue, but it's not super, super common because, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, both our governments went to the trouble of trying to correct the problem by supplementing our regular food products with it. And I don't remember protests in the street, take vitamin D out of my milk, can't force it nope. on me. No, no D mandates here. It's just an interesting nope. concept. Uh, yeah, between which, what we but there were with fluoridation, right? So oh, again, I do, like, yes. I, yeah, so like, why is fluoride in drinking water a problem, but vitamin D in milk? Because people, but I think the problem is vitamin D is natural. Vitamin, well, people think, well, so is fluoride. I mean, frankly, oh, okay. but here's the thing. I think people believe vitamin D is supposed to be in milk and they don't realize it's, it's not. not. Yeah. It's not, right? And, you know, that that's, that's the trivia question that I love to give people too, is like, what is the one group of people who are supposed to have universal vitamin D supplementation? And it's in the book. So you should know the answer. Do you want me to tell you? Well, you, I, 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 I'm trying to see if you read the book or not. This I did. Is my, this is my test on you. Yeah. Newborns. So, so exactly. No, because there's no vitamin D in breast milk. There's no vitamin D in breast milk, right? Now so, wait a minute. If, if women, if women that are lactating take vitamin D supplement, never mind. We won't go there. No, it won't. It, it's it's too big a molecule to be expressed in breast milk. You have to give them extra supplementation. Do you have time for a couple of basic Q and A's outside of the book? Sure, absolutely. We spoke a lot about your book. It's a great book. It's a great read. Um, I highly encourage people to read it because the narrative propels the information. So if you think you didn't want to know anything, <laughs> I guess I phrased that incorrectly. But if if you if you think you're going to be bored by a sciencey book, like I don't really want to sit here and get read and get statistics. I think it's a fun read. I think you can enjoy it as just a piece of fiction. It is a fun read because I have you here, you're a cardiologist, you're an epidemiologist, um, you work at McGill Health Center in research, is that correct? Uh, I have a very complicated job description. So I do work with the McGill Office of Science and Society. I help, I do my research out of the MUHC Research Institute. I'm part of the vascular health unit. They've hired me on there to do some stats work and to help supervise students. Um, I do a little bit of, you know, ad hoc teaching here and there, but I'm, I'm a very nebulous person in that I'm sort of floating around in a bunch of different things. So, and my, and my job description may change by the time this airs. So like, like th things happen, like they're like, Oh, can you do this? And I'm like, sure. Cause I, I like trying and doing different things. So I'm very, I'm a little bit all over the place. So going beyond the book with your expertise in epidemiology and you are a doctor cardiologist. Yeah. But I do know, but I play one on TV. Never mind. The Sorry. book is all about research and how yeah. to interpret some of these findings and what's an observational blah, blah, what, I shouldn't say blah, 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 but it goes into the science in a, in a accessible way. Well, that's the thing. Like the book was initially supposed to be about epidemiology and then there was like, no one can read a book about epidemiology. And then they were like, oh, we could do it about food research. Like, oh, it's a little bit better. And like, it's also a romantic comedy. Sold. That's a book that's going to sell. So after tearing up all this research and what went wrong, I, I thought to myself, well, but you're a cardiologist. Basically, everything you do as a doctor is based on research and studies. Yeah. So answer that question. Um, I think you have to look at it this way. It's sort of like, if I can uh, use an analogy here, 
you can criticize the government and still be proud of the country you live in, right? So the whole point of democracy, of parliamentary or representative democracy in your case, um, is about debate, is about conflict, is about constructive conflict to make things better. And so a lot of the critique of science is not about tearing people down, but it's to make things better. And things are better. If you read research studies now compared to research studies done 20, 30 years ago, research studies from 20, 30 years ago wouldn't pass muster today. They were terribly written, terribly designed. Some of the classic studies like Dahl and Hill's study about smoking causing lung cancer, they didn't adjust for very, very basic variables that today we would have been like, what are you doing? You should have adjusted for this. You should have adjusted for that. The studies included only men. Like there was a whole bunch of problems with it. So we are better. We only get better though if we self-critique ourselves. And so, but you have to strike that balance. You have to be a skeptic without becoming a nihilist. And I think that's the trap that a lot of people fall into. A lot of people take this so, so, so far that they become a nihilist and they're like, everything is terrible. Like, no, things are so much better now than they were 10 years ago. And they will continue to be better because if you train the younger generation to be sensitive to these concepts, eventually they will move up the ranks and take charge. And things like registered reports are going to become common. Replication is going to become common. Having independent statistical review in parallel with peer review, which is a very inside baseball term. I realize that. But as we make those things more and more common, we become better. The more we talk about open data and having people being able to access everybody's raw data, that's going to make things better. The fact that people now publish their code so you can rerun their analyses and see what they did analytically with the statistics. That wasn't a thing 20 years ago. So we do all these critiques, not because the system is bad, but because we want the system to be better. All right, moving from that into specifically cardiovascular disease, you're a cardiologist. Okay. Primary prevention, secondary strategies. All right, first, tell me, what is known about uh, the luck of the draw genetics versus lifestyle choices? Both play a role for sure. Genetics is a major factor. The problem with genetics is that you can't do anything about it. Right. The, the, in fact, the biggest, the biggest risk factor for heart disease is age, which is another thing we can't do anything about. Right. As we get older, as we have an aging population, we're going to see more heart disease. So that's almost inevitable. The one thing that we have control over are the risk factors, exercise, smoking, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes. The better we can treat all of those things and eliminate them as risk factors, the more heart disease is going to go down. And frankly, we have seen dramatic decreases in heart disease because we are so much better at treating risk factors than we were 30 years ago. Like it used to be that men would have, you know, fatal heart attacks in their 50s. And you would say things like, oh, you know, he had a good life. You know, he had kids. He saw his kids grow up. That's what happens. Now somebody dies in their 70s and everybody's like, oh, God. He died young, you know? It's shocking when somebody dies in their 70s. Like, that's not old anymore. And a lot of that is really because we have gotten so much better at eliminating cardiovascular risk factors, mainly smoking, but we're also much better at treating blood pressure, cholesterol, all this other stuff. A blood pressure of 180 used to be considered mild hypertension. Now that's the number that like sends people like screaming to the emergency room because they think they're going to die. So we are so much more aggressive than we used to be. 
And we're seeing the benefits of that. We see a lot less heart disease than we used to, despite the fact that we have an aging population. So, you know, I, I, traditional risk factors play a significant role, and there's still a lot of residual risk that we can attack because while we're better, we're not perfect. There's a lot of people who are still being underserved. There's a lot of people who don't have access to a family doctor. There's a lot of people who are not being screened for things like blood pressure and are walking around with high blood pressure untreated because they don't know it because they just don't have a doctor. So there's a lot that we can do in terms of the systems approach to treat heart disease. And there's always new medications being developed that are incrementally better than what came before. At a certain point, though, we're going to reach a plateau effect where we're like, yeah, it's a little bit better, but is it worth the added cost? And that's going to become a very, very complex thing to sort of reconcile. Similarly to what's going on in cancer, in oncology right now, where you're like, oh, we have this new medication that's like three times more expensive. Hmm. You know, that's a very different a very difficult thing to balance when you're in charge of Medicare or in charge of, you know, a hospital where you have limited budgets and you have to decide what are you actually going to have in stock and what are you going to pay for? When you say treating risk factors, so there are do's and don'ts, right? So, um, but they, the bummer as someone that tries to reduce risk, risk factors is there's not a one-to-one -one relationship, right? So don't smoke, don't drink, don't become obese. So if you do those things, it's not good. So don't do right. them. All right. Do exercise, do eat mostly plants, and have good social relationships. Yeah. But the bummer is you can't pick a bad thing and a good thing and expect them to even out. So you can't eat enough Not vegetables really. to overcome smoking. Is that correct? No. I mean, that's a bummer yeah. that what we don't do yeah. is better than what we're actually actively doing. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it does. I mean, you have to think of it. And there is something, I think the American Heart Association calls it the healthy seven or something. Oh, yeah. Talk okay. about they changed it to factors. eight recently, right? Oh, they, that's right. Yeah. So, but that's the thing, they are cumulative, right? So the, the point is to try to be as, as ideal as you can be in as many things as possible. So smoking, I think most people would say is probably the worst of them all, right? If there was one thing that you had to focus on, quit smoking. So that's almost the worst thing that you could do for your health. Second is probably be physically active. If you exercise regularly, that's really important. And then you get into the more medical stuff, which is uh, diabetes and then blood pressure, cholesterol also play an important role. You know, the other stuff, it's problematic because it's so nebulous. You know, there's a there's a big debate going on about is obesity in and of itself an independent risk factor or does it modify everything through your increased risk of diabetes, high blood pressure and all that? So is there a concept called metabolically healthy obese, um, which is a thing that gets debated and analyzed in papers? And I think the consensus is probably not it probably is a risk factor in and of itself but it's a very very subtle thing to talk about because what you really want is control somebody's risk factors and then if all you're left with is the obesity but they have no high blood pressure no diabetes they don't smoke they exercise regularly that's maybe not as worrisome a thing although that is also going to change as we get more and more of these new weight loss medications. I know people have a lot of hot takes about semaglutide or um, Wigovi, as it's known as the, the brand name. Um, these diabetes medications that can be used to, to result in weight loss. And you, know, you have people coming out and saying, oh, it's wrong that we should be treating obesity as disease. And I, I don't subscribe to that line of thought at all because it is a risk factor. And we have, these medications have demonstrated that when they are used to reduce obesity to promote weight loss, you do see a cardiovascular benefit in the long term. So we do all this stuff, not because we're trying to 
get people to conform to some beauty standard. That's not what science cares about. We're doing this to prevent disease. So if you can prevent heart disease and cancer, which are two of the main problems associated with long-term obesity, that's a, that's a significant thing. So I think you're going to see the conversation around obesity change over the next five to 10 years as these medications become more common, more widely available, and hopefully drop in price because they're still quite expensive. I've got to, I'll make a prediction here. Speaking of the Oracle, I predict that the healthy obesity will go the way of chocolate's good for you. Um, and red yeah, wine. Well, that being said, there are still a lot of people who think chocolate is good for you. Okay. There's still a lot of people who think chocolate is good for you. But yeah, no, I think so too. I think we're going to become, inc- I think I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of very complicated conversations around, you know, do you want to consider obesity as disease? There's insurance implications. There's a whole lot of stuff. And, you know, people have been treated badly, you know, by society and by the healthcare system for having problems like obesity. And so there's a lot of complicated issues here. But, and a lot of it, just to draw a parallel to the cholesterol debate, there were no good treatments for obesity, right? There was nothing that you could give to prescribe to patients to make things better apart from bariatric surgery, which has its own complications associated with it. But if you can develop medications that are easily available, have few side effects that are very effective and are affordable, well, now all of a sudden you've changed the conversation because now you can do something about this and you can help people lose the weight that is, you know, not good for their health in the long term. And let's not forget that also uh, regarding smoking, it was known that it was bad for you, but the industry spent billions of dollars and years coming up with science to try to prove otherwise. And with obesity, you don't have to blame it on the person that's obese because there's a massive processed food industry that spends yeah. billions of dollars trying to, you know, they're pumping. So there's going to be that, you know, I don't know, we're going to see Surgeon General warnings on, you know, chicken fingers <laughs> coming up. You never know. Yeah, I mean, that's harder because it's not a single product. The thing about, about cigarettes, it was very clear. It was that product, right? It was like those six manufacturers, it was that product. It was a very, very contained thing. And the problem with food, and now we're going back to the book, the problem with food is that there's no single one food that's responsible. It's not just ice cream that's contributing to obesity. It's not just potato chips. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that's unhealthy. And part of the problem is that we live in a society where junk food is cheaper than fresh fruits and vegetables, right? There's a lot of societal and economic factors that make it hard for people to eat healthy, and so when people say, it's like, well, we need to be treating the, the root causes of obesity. Absolutely. Let's address these issues. But these are very complicated issues. Separate of that is you have a patient in your office who has this problem right now, right? In the same way that if you want to prevent lung cancer cases, you pass anti-smoking laws. But you don't stop treating the people who have already developed lung cancer. They need to have surgery and chemotherapy to treat the problem they have. So we need to treat the people who have the problem while simultaneously addressing the underlying root causes, which are very complex and really tied in with the economics of food prices and the fact that our society has changed and we live in a much more sedentary society than our parents and and grandparents did. Speaking of a sedentary society um, and exercise, that's become a science too, the science of exercise. So as a cardiologist, notice how many times I can throw that in there. As a yeah. cardiologist, are you, what do you think about um, these various exercises? Like now high intensity interval training is supposed to be more beneficial cardio, like 15 minutes of that is better than 30 minutes of, you know, uh, what would you call it? Regular pace like regular jogging. moderate intensity exercise. Right, so doing these spurts is better. Is there yeah. any, What's the evidence say about that? 
unless you're trying to win the Olympics, it probably doesn't matter all that much. The greatest barrier to exercise is that people don't want to do it, right? So if you find an activity that you enjoy, that you're going to stick with, do that and don't overthink it. Because the greatest benefit to exercise is when you go from zero to something, okay? Everything above that becomes a law of diminishing marginal returns. Is high-intensity high interval training better? Yeah, it's probably better if you're trying to like improve your, you know, half marathon time, you're trying to like become a better athlete. But most people don't exercise to become better athletes. They exercise to stay healthy. And so if your goal is disease prevention and staying in shape, you can do anything. You can swim, you can play tennis. You just have to do things that are active because if you like it, you're more likely to do it and more likely to stick with it. If you hate running, you're not going to become a runner. If you hate running, you are not going to go to the gym to run on a treadmill, right? If you hate lifting weights, you're not going to go to a gym to do that. So you got to find activities you like. And that's why sports activities and these group classes have become popular recently because people like doing things in groups. Whereas some people prefer to do things alone. Like I'm, I like to run because I can do it anytime, anywhere, whenever I have a free moment in my day, because my schedule is a little bit complicated and, and erratic. So it would not fit my schedule to do a group class, but other people would prefer it. So whatever you prefer, do that. And because that's the thing that's going to work for you. That's usually the advice I, I give to people. What I like about the high intensity interval training is that uh, you get it done quicker. <laughs> so yeah. you do like eight reps, 15 minutes, you know, uh, with a minute off. So 30 seconds of this, 20 seconds or more, 10 seconds of really high intensity, and then take a minute off. That beats being on the treadmill for a half hour. I just like to get it done. So Listen, and if that's important, and if that's what helps you get it done, then you do that, right? I feel because like I'm getting more, too. I kind of plateau. Well, yeah, and listen, and that's the thing. And it also depends what your objectives are, right? If you want to be faster or stronger, then, yeah, there are certain things that you can do if you want to, you know, get bigger muscles, if you want to be able to run faster, if you want to, you know, run a marathon or run an ultramarathon or whatever. Like, it depends what your objectives are. But for a lot of people who do nothing, if they go for a half hour walk every day, that's a major change to their lifestyle. And it's probably going to pay a lot of dividends on the road. So it's really a question of where are you now and where do you want to be and how much effort are you willing to put into getting there? And for a lot of people, the easier you make it for them, the more likely they are to actually go and do it. Well, I used to swim and I did like that. If you're doing lengths back and forth, that is a workout. But the drag is, it's like a two-hour thing to do. You know, you're going to get go down there, take a shower afterwards, before, blah, blah, blah. By the time you get done, it's like two hours. I don't have time for yeah. that anymore. So and, it's and, you know, and, and, let's, and for you and me, and I agree with you, for you and me, that would be a burden. And yet for some people, swimming is better. You know why? Because they have arthritis. And now they're in a zero-gravity environment where they're not putting stress on their joints. Right? So everybody has their own reasons for doing a particular thing. So that's the thing. You find what you like and you do that. And some people love swimming and they love to go to a pool and swim there. And you know what? And that's easier on their joints. And it's like, why not? Sure. Perfect. All right. Talk to me about aspirin and statins for yes. primary prevention. So it used to be aspirin, secondary prevention. Oh, let's take it for primary too. Oh, maybe that switched around. What about statins? So what went on there? Right. So for aspirin, there was a time when people said everybody over 50 should be on an aspirin. Um, we no longer say that. That was only a few years ago, right? Yeah, not that long. Well, it's interesting. Like the, the, that slogan kept coming back, even though the science had largely moved on from it a while ago. Frankly, I'd say even I'd say close to like 10, 15 years, actually, that has not really been a thing anymore. 
The issue with aspirin for primary prevention, back in the day, talking like 1990s, maybe even the early 2000s, we had, there were not as many good therapies for all the risk factors. And so there likely was a high cardiovascular risk that you could lower by taking aspirin. The trade-off with aspirin is that, yeah, it lowers your cardiovascular risk. You're less likely to have a heart attack, but you're more likely to bleed. And so it's that trade-off between bleeding and heart attack that's important. Nowadays, we are much more aggressive at treating risk factors. So everybody's cardiovascular risk is much lower. So now the trade-off with aspirin is less clear because yeah, you're preventing some heart attacks by adding aspirin to your medication, but you're also bleeding more. And so for low-risk people who have never had a heart attack, we usually don't give them aspirin anymore because the bleeding risk probably outweighs the benefit. If you've had a heart attack, if you're high risk, then we do give aspirin, obviously, because you're at much higher risk. With statins, almost the reverse thing happened. We generally didn't give people medication for cholesterol because ah, you're at low risk to begin with. We're not going to extract much benefit from it. And we would only give statins as secondary prevention after your first heart attack. But there's, I think, a growing recognition that you should treat high cholesterol, especially if it's very, very high. But the same sort of thing with aspirin, like there's a benefit to lowering your cholesterol, but there's a trade-off in terms of costs and side effects and what have you. And so the higher risk you are, the more you're going to benefit from the statin, whereas the lower risk you are, perhaps the less necessary it becomes. So it's always a trade-off of side effects. So the Cliff Notes summary statement here is aspirin is only for secondary prevention, cholesterol, statins should be used in primary prevention for people who are at high cardiovascular risk because you are going to be preventing events with treatment. Do you think we'll see statins in water supplies like fluoridation? I, I think that's I very much doubted. Oh. I mean, people always say that. Yeah, I right. think that was actually a joke in an editorial okay. at some point. It's really like captured the public. No, I mean, they're never going to do that because you want individualized therapy, right? I mean, the idea of, just to extrapolate what you said, the idea of a poly pill, which has come up in the literature, which is we're going to take a pill that has aspirin, statin, and a blood pressure medication, and then metformin for diabetes, package it into one pill, and just give it to everybody. And they have studied something like that, but they've mainly studied it in sort of remote areas, rural areas, where it's very hard to access medical care. It's been studied in places like India and, and, and Iran and places like that. I very much doubt we'll ever see that in North America because we are much more in favor of individualizing your medical care, tailoring your medical care to you, adjusting it to your blood pressure, to your cholesterol level, to your individual risk, as opposed to treating the whole population. Because the whole idea of a poly pill is you treat everybody. You don't test them for high cholesterol. You just assume that most people have high cholesterol and you will on average do more for the population if you just treat everybody. So you just tell everybody, here you go. You're on average going to be better off no need for repetitive blood testing and expensive medical care. So it's very interesting how different countries can subscribe to different philosophies in terms of, you know, how we practice medicine. And those cardiovascular disease risk factors like cholesterol, blood pressure, obesity, um, do you smoke or not? Those are, you can objectively measure those things with medical tests. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which brings me to a question kind of from the book, one of these biases that you write about. It came up for me because I was wondering how reliable is information in these observational studies that uh, where they gathered the data from a survey or a, a questionnaire. Um, and this came up for me, I was writing on, I looked at three, I was trying to figure out if uh, 
electronic means of uh, delivery of interventions help keep people on a healthy lifestyle. So if they get text messages to remind them to do this, or if they get emails or something, um, and I read three papers on it. So they were kind of different. But one of the papers that I read, it was kind of interesting that they claimed to find that in this randomized controlled trial, um, they had patients that they'd already received angioplasty and placement of a stent, all right? And they had 440 people in the intervention and then 430 in the control, and the control received standard care after the mm. stent, all right? The intervention group received the standard care plus four text messages a week and access to a cardiac health website. Mm. And then, you know, the, the texting was, you know, um, have you exercised, are you eating how many fruits and vegetables and whatnot, okay? So they based the success of the text message program on a questionnaire. Did you stick to it? Did this help? Did you do that? All right. Interestingly, the questionnaire itself was given in the cardiologist's office six months post-intervention. So not only are you filling this out, you're under the watchful eye of the guy that's supposed to be helping you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Everybody had positive results on the questionnaire. They did really well. Yeah. The second step, though, then they measured their cholesterol. They measured their blood pressure. They measured uh, their BMI. It turns out, objectively measure, no difference. Questionnaire very yeah. positive, objective yeah. measures, not so much. Now, that just got me thinking, I mean, how reliable are these, not just here, but that kind of sounds, there's some data there about the reliability, not to mention probably you shouldn't give it in the cardiologist's office yeah. right after an examination, because people are, they may answer a different way. So what bias are we talking about here, and how do you, you know, how do you evaluate that in these observational studies? Uh, so it's called social desirability bias, whereas people give you the answer they think you want to hear. It's like, did you find that you exercise more? Oh, absolutely. Did you find that? You, yeah, yeah, we totally smoked less. Like people are telling you what they want to hear because there is a right answer. There's a socially acceptable answer to the question of, do you smoke? Do you drink alcohol? You know, do you exercise regularly? Because people are ashamed to say, yes, I smoke or no, I don't. Because, you know, we don't, we don't want to appear bad in the eyes of others. And even for measuring things like height and weight, like, you know, people will fudge the numbers. Like, they will claim to be taller than they are or claim to weigh less than they do. That's just the reality of the situation. So you have to be conscious of it. And you have to realize that whenever you have the option of measuring something rather than asking somebody for something, always measure it, right? That's a clear thing. But that's not easy. That's expensive. That is logistically complicated. So sometimes we fall back on things that are easier, understanding that they are suboptimal. The problem becomes when we start start forgetting that there are caveats to this research. Because if you're going to ask stuff on a questionnaire, you have to be prepared for the fact that people may not be giving you honest answers. Now, most people are not going to overtly lie, but people have a habit of con conforming to an outside source. And if the outside source is society saying you shouldn't be a smoker, they're more likely to check no when you ask, do you smoke? And that will give you a false result when you analyze your data because now you classified smokers as non-smokers. I thought it was an interesting study just for that part of it. And maybe that, yeah. should, have been the, that should have been the focus of it. Yeah. So because now we, oh, they have some data on what, what is it? Social desirability bias? Is that what you just call it? Social desirability bias, yeah. All right. Okay, back to the book to sum up. So in the book, you have a kitten named Sparky that travels with you everywhere you go. It's a special pouch in your clothing that you've sewn in there just so Sparky can travel with you. Is that true? <laughs> no. There's I know it's not in the book. <laughs> it's 
only there's only one animal in the book and his name is Rufus and he makes an appearance right at the end. And he may have a significant role in the sequel if I can get a sequel off the ground. Okay, I know that you prefer dogs over cats, so I just kind of I had prefer to dogs get over that. Cats. But there is one thing in the book that you have this character named Katie and that yes. she mentions that uh, she's found that most unmarried men have empty refrigerators. Yes. But unanswered is, how did Katie collect that data on most unmarried um, men versus married? And exactly how many kitchens has she been in? And how did she get there? <laughs> Maybe you could... I think she just, I think she, she's learned from, you know, experience that most unmarried men are uh, somewhat um, less than competent when it comes to the culinary arts, which is why, you know, if a man can cook, that's usually a, a positive sign if you're in a relationship. So that's a good life lesson for everybody watching is like knowing how to cook. And uh, and here's the and just to, to make this slightly serious, apart from the joke that we're making, people who cook for themselves eat healthier than people who eat out. That's just a given, because the minute you're ordering food from somewhere else, there's going to be more salt and more fat in it. So there is a reason to learn how to cook and to try to cook as often as you can, independent of any romantic benefits. It's cheaper for you to cook for yourself and it's healthier for you to cook for yourself. So there is a strong argument to be made for that. All right. The book title is does coffee cause cancer and eight more myths about the food we eat. We've talked about misleading titles though. I'm wondering what about running an experiment with that book and publishing exactly the same book, but with a different title, coffee ah. causes cancer and eight more everyday foods that are slowly killing you and your children <laughs> and then see which well, one, which one sells better. The interesting thing is that we had this discussion because the point of the book was to bust myths, right? So when you put it in the form of a question, it's not a myth, right? Because the myth is coffee causes cancer in the same way some salt is good for you. So we were like, but then we were like, no, but if we read it that way, people are going to think coffee does cause cancer. So there was this whole discussion about how we were going to phrase the title. And they were like, no, we have to stick with the question, even though we haven't technically phrased it as a myth. Because when you read the table of contents, the chapter titles are myths, which is, you know, the myths are uh, vitamin C prevents the common cold, uh, red meat causes cancer, some salt is good for you, coffee causes cancer, um, uh, red wine is good for your heart, uh, chocolate can boost your brain performance, and then, um, but no, with a breakfast, uh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and then uh coffee is bad for your heart and then vitamin d is the cure for everything so those are the nine myths in the book and part of your bio um it says that you know that within five years half your research will be wrong or proven incorrect yeah. do you have that posted in your wall for when people come in for consults i i do i do and and uh, it's you know it's one of the things that really i like preoccupies me i don't know how much it preoccupies other people like medical science keeps changing and i am very i'm still pretty early in my career you know i, I moisturize daily that's why i look young um but you know i'm i always have that worry like is it at a certain point is medical science going to outpace me and am i going to be out of touch and that's i have this perpetual worry about not keeping up to date with the new scientific literature and um that's part of the reason why I sort of force myself to consume everything that's coming out here because I don't want to be outpaced by history and realize that 10 years from now, I'm saying things that are no longer true. I don't want to have missed the bus and have, you know, a new generation of young doctors saying, no, no, we haven't been saying that for years. Uh, so that's the real difficulty. It's forcing yourself to engage in this creative destruction every so often and abandon your sacred cows once things change. 
Something big that changed in your world, uh, this study, like, was it 2017 that showed that um, heart stenting for stable angina no better than placebo yeah. surgery? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are people that are doctors that had, they do that a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. was that something that was never properly studied? It was just assumed? And then this, by the way, that was kind of an interesting study to do actual sham surgery on people and then evaluate the results. Kudos yeah, to whoever the, got that past the review board. I mean, that was Orbita, and they actually had a very hard time getting it past the review board. Like, the review board would not let them do the study for more than four weeks. They were like, okay, do the sham procedure, and then four weeks later, bring the patient back in and do the procedure. Like, they wouldn't oh. let them go untreated for four weeks. Okay. Uh, and the review board insisted on that, so it was a very hard study to do. I think... For those of us who been have been examining the tea leaves, we sort of were thinking that might actually be the case. Now, an important distinction to make, if you're having a heart attack right now, you should unblock the artery. This is for stable patients who are like, I have chest pain, but it's chronic. Or even I have no symptoms, but they've just found this blocked artery, but I have no symptoms. So you unblock an artery when you're having an acute event. You don't necessarily unblock an artery if you're stable. You only treat stable patients if the medications are not enough and they're still having symptoms. So I think the Orbita trial changed practice or rather it reinforced what at least I kind of assumed was true. And I think most people kind of assumed it was true, but there was some pushback of people were like, no, what are you talking about? We need, because it's very counterintuitive. Like there's a blocked artery, we have to open it. And I still get this from patients and you really have to explain to them like, no, you don't necessarily unblock every blocked artery because plaque can regress. Arteries can grow around the blockage. Um, and so studies like that are important. And that's where it becomes really important to be a skeptic and be a critic without becoming a nihilist. Because when a new genuine discovery comes around, you have to be able to recognize it for what it is. So no study is perfect. Every study has flaws. And so you could pick up, you could nitpick every study. But it's important to realize when a study is important that you recognize it as true and then change as a result. And that's the real danger of being too critical is that you'll never change because nothing is ever good enough for you. And not to mention when that study came out, it had been years of standard practice. And no yeah. doctor wants to think, I've been doing this for 30 years. You can't tell me yeah. it's wrong. I know it's yeah. right. I mean. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it's, it's, just so in, in, it's just so intuitive, right? You're, you're doing a procedure. There's a blocked artery. You pass a wire and a balloon through it to open it up. Like, why would you not want to do that? It's very counterintuitive. But sometimes that's why doing research is so important because we have to establish what's true, not just not just what seems logical. Does Coffee Cause Cancer and Eight More Myths About the Food We Eat? It's a great book. It's a great read for anyone that's been perplexed by one week red wine's good for you, the next week it's not, or the report that suggests <laughs> that being slightly overweight has a protective effect and all that stuff. Before you do the sequel, consider making a young adult version of it. So, and then you can work in Sparky. You can work Sparky in the kitten that carries. Yeah, there we go. I could make it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Listen, have a young, have a, a young. Uh, I could have the main characters have uh, have a child, and then he can go on adventures and like solve stuff with other young children. Make it like a Hardy Boys mystery type thing. Also, you got to come back for another show. All right, anytime, absolutely. Dr. Christopher Labos, you have been my guest here on Five Hundred Two Conversations. I greatly appreciate your time. I'll link the podcast 
and I'll probably link OSS in there as the Office for Science and Society because you yeah. write for them. You make regular and appearances. And put, put the link so they can pre-order the book. Put the link. Um, you also make yeah. regular appearances on CBC, which for those of yeah. us in America, that's Canadian Broadcasting Company because you have TV up there, right? Apparently. We do have TV in Canada, amazingly enough. Okay. Amazingly enough. And healthcare. So kudos yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah. All right, Dr. Labos, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You take care.